Why don't you go ahead and get out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 17. That's where we are tonight. Luke chapter 17, and we are going to be in the first six verses. As you're turning there, let me just recap for you where we've been. We picked this series back up a few weeks ago after having done it last fall. We picked it back up just a few weeks ago, and we started in Luke 13, and we've been going through the gospel, the gospel of Luke. We've been seeing what Jesus has taught. We've been learning along the way who he is and what he valued because we are people who claim to follow him and it is our desire to know what he desired of us. And that's what we've been learning, who Jesus was and what he taught. In the last few weeks, um, you know, we've had, we've had, we've had some heavy hitters the last few weeks. We've had a lot of things to dissect. Um, we've been in a lot of parables, right? We've been in the prodigal son. We've been in the dishonest manager. We've talked about the Lord's table. We talked about the dinner party with the guests being invited. We've spent a lot of time in parables. And so tonight I thought I'd change it up a bit and we dive into some good old fashioned straightforward teaching from Jesus. Just no illustrations as far as parables go, just straightforward concepts that he is giving the disciples directly. And, and tonight, there are really two topics that we are going to be studying as we find in these first six verses of Luke 17. I'm going to tell you the, the two topics before we dive into it. And the first one is sin. We are going to be discussing sin a little more in depth tonight. And the second topic is faith. Now, we're not going to be just hitting the definition of faith like we covered in Hebrews all last semester. If you're with us, we were in Hebrews chapter 11 and we hit the definition of faith like weekly. We're not going to be necessarily defining faith fully tonight, but we're going to be talking about its presence in our lives and the effect that it has in our lives. So sin and faith. And I'll tell you, these two topics um, they're, they're not separate from one another. Like I didn't just decide that I need more content tonight. And so I'm going to tack on a few verses at the end, right? Like there's an actual correlation to these two topics as we see them here in the passage tonight. And particularly we're going to see sin and faith and how they relate into having a sin fighting faith. And that is the, the name of tonight's message, a sin fighting faith. So let's go ahead and look at the passage together. Go ahead and get your eyes on the text. I'm going to read all six verses. And he said to his disciples, this is Jesus talking, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So you've got a bit of an understanding of what we're talking about tonight. I outlined the passage. We've just read the passage. Now let's actually see what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Here's the first point for us tonight to understand in this passage, and that is sin is serious. Sin is 
serious. And I take that from the overall feel of the passage in the first place when it comes to those first four verses. So if you're looking to those first four verses, that's the overall feel we get immediately. The first point to be taken is that sin is serious and, and, and it's bad, right? And that sin is bad, that's not unfamiliar to any of us that have grown up in church. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in church, um, it's not unfamiliar to our culture that the church thinks sin is bad. It's one of those things that people know about church. In fact, it's one of the reasons people don't like church because they don't like church telling them what to do or how to act or who to be or what's right and what's wrong. So the idea that sin is bad, that's not new to us tonight. And there's plenty of other teachings that Jesus has in the gospels here that talk about how serious sin is. Like elsewhere in the gospels, you know, there's, there's the um, illustrations Jesus uses when he says, like, if your eye is causing you to sin, go ahead and rip that out. And if your hand is causing you to sin, go ahead and, and cut that off because it would be better for you to enter heaven maimed than it would be to live a life controlled and influenced by sin. And we've talked about these things before. But I was, I was preparing for this message and I realized it's been a long time since we've really taken a moment and, and defined what sin is, right? We, we, get the, we get the picture, sin is bad, but it's been a while since we have defined what sin is. And if we're talking about how serious it is, we should probably have a good understanding of what it is, right? So um, go ahead. I, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to take just a moment before I show you the definition. Um, I want you to take a moment and go ahead and, and think about what you would write as the definition of sin. Like if you were to write it in the margin of your Bible or fill it out on a, on a test, what would be your definition of what sin is that you feel encompasses all that you've read about it or heard about it in your lifetime? So just take a minute and think on that. Silence is so awkward, right? All right, the reason I wanted to give you just a moment to think about it is I, I wanted to see if it revealed to you in any way that you may not have a good grasp on what sin is or that you may not be able to, to clearly define it. And we, we should be able to define it because it's what we say Jesus saved us from. Right? It's what we say Jesus died for. He died for our sins. He saved us from our sins. And, and if we can't fully comprehend what he saved us from or what he died for, we're never fully going to be able to comprehend and state why he needed to die. And so here's, here's the working definition of sin. As we head into talking about its seriousness and a few other points tonight, here's the definition of sin that, that best incorporates what we'd see in Scripture, and that's this. Sin is... The action or thought that is contrary to the law, will, or character of God. Action or thought that is contrary to the law, will, or character of God. Now take each one of those for just a minute. So action or thought, that pretty much just encompasses anything that we do, right? Contrary to the law, which would be what God has explicitly said, that he desires from us what we should not do. God has things that he does not want his people to do. That would be his law. His will, meaning what we know to be true for what he wants in our lives, what he has called us to do and our obedience or disobedience to do it. 
and character, who we know God to be, because scripture says, be holy as I am holy. That's God speaking, not me, right? God says, be holy as I am holy, which means that he is set apart. He is holy. He is apart from the things of the world. He is pure, and he calls us to be that. And when we purposely act against that, we are going against his character, and we are sinning. So that is the definition of sin as you're thinking through it, contrary to the law, will, and character of God. And as an overall application point in this passage, we see that this definition, what is, it's serious, right? I've said that several times. In fact, um, it's not just serious. Jesus is actually talking about a very specific type of thing to be serious about in this passage. And that's that we shouldn't be the ones causing it. We shouldn't be the ones causing it. And that's actually our first little sub point of application tonight, right? If we understand that sin is serious as we're seeing it in this passage, our first response to this passage should be don't cause it. Look back at verses one and two with me and you'll see what I'm talking about. So go ahead and look at verse one. I'm gonna read a little bit, explain a little bit as I go. Verse one here, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. So temptations to do things contrary to God's will or character or nature, like temptations, those are a part of life. They will happen. But Jesus says, if you look back there, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe here and in scripture means curse them. Curse them, like let them be cursed. May they be cursed. So the son of God is pronouncing a curse on those who would willingly bring sin into somebody's life. He's pronouncing a curse on those who would willingly cause somebody to be tempted to do what is against God's will and his nature and his law. He pronounces this curse and he goes on in, in verse two there and says, it would be better for him, this person that causes those things, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus is warning not only that sin is serious, but it's so serious that he pronounces a woe onto people that would cause such temptations to come. And that's why our point of application is don't cause it. And I want to encourage you in this to lean in to this point because um, it's really easy to see this point and think it doesn't apply to us. It's really easy to look at this point and think like, well, uh, I haven't handed someone a murder weapon lately. I haven't planted porn on somebody's computer. Like, I'm fine. I'm not causing people to sin. But when Jesus says, woe to the one through whom sin comes, he doesn't just mean that we are forcibly putting sin in somebody's lap in a physical sense, right? He's saying, woe to the one who equips people to sin, who equips them to do it, who brings it to their doorstep. So in instead, th this woe applies to any of us that would equip someone else to have the capacity to be tempted to sin and equip somebody that is weaker than us. So you notice right there in the passage, Jesus says, little ones. Now his reference here, he, it, he could mean a few things, right? It, it could be, and it wouldn't be wrong if people said in this passage that Jesus is talking about little children. Like we know Jesus loved children and he did reference them often. 
when it came to his teachings. It's possible that he was talking about children, um, but in this passage and in the, the verses preceding it and, and following it, we actually don't, we don't see any children referenced. So in this context, it's probably better to think of the translation of little ones as meaning those that are weaker or younger in their faith. Those that are weaker or younger in their faith. And, and in fact, even if you thought Jesus was talking about children here, it doesn't change the teaching, right? Like it doesn't change the meaning of what he's saying. Is that woe to you who would cause someone weaker or younger in the faith to stumble. Woe to you if you bring that temptation to their door. Now I've talked a lot about the seriousness. Talked a lot about how it could be any of us doing this. Let's talk about some examples, right? things that we might actually see in our life. Like, I think one that has become sort of an acceptable sin in our lives, gossip. Right? Gossip is, I think, a really great example. And, and what is gossip? It's, it's knowing something about someone, something they've done or something they've said or something that's happened to them. Maybe it's something that's private. It's knowing that and telling that to a third party that isn't involved in the situation at all. What have you done? What have you done when you do that? Not only have you committed the sin of gossiping yourself, but now you have hand-delivered a temptation over to someone else to do the same thing that you just did. You were willing to speak poorly of somebody, to speak of something that was not yours to speak, to bring somebody else into a situation they should not be in, and now you've just handed them the ability for them to do the exact same thing to anyone else that they would so choose to open their mouth. That's bringing sin to the doorstep. That's bringing temptations to somebody else. And we like to downplay these sins that aren't as tangible, right? We like to downplay the ones we can't see as often. It's a lot easier to blame somebody for handing a drunk a bottle or handing an addict a syringe. But the seriousness of sin that Jesus is teaching about says that it's just as serious to cause someone else to give in to this sin as it is those things. And that can be said about other sins that we don't realize, but harboring hatred and bitterness. Like a brother or sister in Christ, they sin against you, right? They sin against you, they anger you, may they hurt you even. And there may be real reasons to confront them. And in fact, you may be encouraged to do just that. But you know what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't be telling your friends. You shouldn't be telling others because you simply just want them to listen and get on your side. And you want someone to be bitter alongside with. And you want someone to help express anger alongside you. And you want someone else to feel unforgiveness. Like you shouldn't be bringing other people into those situations because all you're doing is equipping them to give into the sins of bitterness, them to give into unforgiveness, them to give into slander, them to give into disunity of the church. Like you're just handing it to them, bringing it right to them and saying, here you go, good luck. I haven't dealt with it very well, but you might as well. So not, handing something, not handling something in a biblical fashion, like you are instead equipping others to sin alongside you, and in some cases, sin worse than you. And Jesus says, woe. I like the good woe, right? Woe to you. Cursed are those of you that desire to do that, that live a life that does that. If you're the type of person that would rather get others involved in your situation simply to make you feel better, get them acting on your behalf and sinning alongside you through gossip or bitterness or whatever, 
then Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. So it's, it's not a light topic, right? And I, I was joking with the leadership. I was like, man, at some point, I need to show the college ministry that there are other topics to talk about that aren't so heavy hitting, but also it's not my fault. Jesus just gets more serious as he gets closer to death, okay? Like as he gets closer to the cross, he gets more serious about his teaching. So this just happens to be what we're in this week. And, and it's not a light topic. And it is one that should certainly convict us, right? Like scripture should convict us. And it's, it's one that certainly convicted the disciples. And we're going to see that in a moment. We're going to see how it convicted them. But first, that's not all that Jesus has to say about sin, right? He doesn't just say, don't cause it. But the second point of application is don't keep it. Sin is serious, so don't cause it, but also don't keep it. Sounds like my son is crying back there. <laughs> Look back at verse three with me. I'm gonna do the same thing. Just read a little bit, explain a little bit. Verse three, right there. Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. So he's telling them as a collective whole, pay attention, be on guard, keep watch. And then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So in instead of equipping and causing others to sin, instead of causing it, you should instead... Be the person who confronts sin. Be the person who calls it out. You should be the person who doesn't allow sin to stay in the body of Christ, the, the gathering of believers, the fellowship of who we are. Like you should be a person, you're not going to keep it. You're not going to put up with it. On top of that though, because right, right now, some of you might be getting fired up, right? But we need to also understand that it's not just that you're this bold person that loves to go confront sin and, and bring it to people's doorsteps and you're dog the bounty hunter of sin in the body of Christ, right? Like that's not what we're saying. Actually, you're not to do it angrily. You're actually not to do it out of bitterness. Instead, you're supposed to be doing it out of a forgiving heart out of a love, right? out of love, you're going to disprove of their actions. That's what the word rebuke means. Rebuke means to critically disprove of somebody's sinful action. To critically disprove of their sinful action. And I, I say that we need to do it out of love and that's how you should do it because of, of two reasons. The first is that if we're being critical in the wrong way, that's actually sin. Like scripture talks about what happens when you're critical towards somebody in the wrong way. It's called reviling. If you didn't know what that word meant, it's actually all throughout scripture. You see it in Paul's writings all the time. But to revile someone is to be bitterly critical towards them. To be bitterly critical towards them and to speak it to them and disprove of actions in a negative way. And that should hit home for all of us because when someone hurts us, when someone sins against us, it is a fine line. It is a fine line between those that rebuke and those that revile. Let me say that again. Like when we're put in a situation in which we feel wronged by somebody and that their sin has hurt us or they have purposely entreating us, have gone against the will, character, and law of God, when that happens to us, it is a fine line that we tread in our reaction on whether or not we're going to rebuke them or we're going to revile them. Like one is to be critical 
for their sake and for their godliness and for your own godliness. And if you're rebuking someone, you are critical of their sinful actions for their godliness and for your godliness. But if you're going to revile someone, then you're being critical for the sake of your sin, for their shame and hurt and for your sin and your sinful pleasures. Like where someone has hurt you or said something or done something or even just appeared to have done something, instead of being critical directly towards them, we like to be critical about them. And I'd say that that's what most of our nature is, right? To not be critical directly towards them, but instead we want to be critical about them. Like maybe to your friends. And all of a sudden, without you ever following the biblical mandate to rebuke the person, you've stepped into reviling the person. So you've chosen not to rebuke. You've chosen to revile. That's, that's the risk, right? And all of a sudden, we're back in that spot. We step in that risk, and, and where are we back to? We're back to being the person that Jesus says, whoa. Back to being the person, once again, that Jesus says, it's better if you tie a stone around your neck and jump in the Mississippi than to be the type of person you're being right now. So we, we know, I told you there's two reasons why we know that rebuking is loving, right? One, because the opposite is actually sinful. But two, because of Jesus' uh, desire for the reaction in the, in the next verse here. Look back at the end of verse three and, and verse four right there. He says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Like the heart behind rebuking someone of their sins, the heart behind disapproving of their actions and telling them directly about it is that you would be able to forgive them. And notice like not once, right? Like seven times, not, not just like seven times in general, but seven times in a day, When's the last time you can think of anyone that has sinned against you seven times in 24 hours? Probably not too much. Some of you are probably thinking your parents or siblings right now. Just simmer down, okay? The point is Jesus is using hyperbole here, right? He's bringing something to the exaggerative point to make the point that we are to always be like that. When Jesus speaks in terms like this, it's called hyperbole. It's a, it's a way of writing back in Greek texts and back in historical narratives like this, where it is purposely exaggerated to a point where it seems like, oh, literally all the time. That's the point. Someone sins against you seven times a day. Someone sins against you. You are to forgive. And the whole point is that it's loving because you need to hate sin so much and you need to love godliness so much that you can't stand for someone to be in that sin. And you can't stand yourself to have the sin of unforgiveness and bitterness. So it's a hard saying, right? And it seems impossible. And it seems even more impossible because of the whole seven times a day thing. I mean, it feels like we always have to be on guard. We always have to be like this. And it seems to be an impossible task that we can't stand up to. And in fact, most of us, we haven't been able to stand up to it, right? Like, I mean, somebody sins against you once. It might take you a few days, a few weeks, and, and you, you get through it. 
If they come back and do it a second time, how many of you are already losing motivation to continue forgiving them? How many of you are already losing motivation to continue seeing their repentance towards you? I'd say probably all of us, right? And now there are scriptures that talk about when a brother and sister sin against us and they're not repentant. Like if you're interested in that, Matthew 18, like you can check that out. Like there's procedures for those that don't repent, but Jesus is talking about someone that is repenting. Somebody that tells you not only that they apologize, that they're sorry, but they're turning away from sinning against you and then they come back and do it again. Jesus is making the point that this is someone that might be sinning against you because of their own immature faith, because of their own sin struggles, because of something that they sincerely don't want to do or it keeps on coming in their life, right? Like this is the implication of scripture here. And Jesus in this scenario, he's given us something that is impossible to maintain and uphold. And the, the, the disciples agreed. And if you're feeling that right now, so did the disciples. Look back at, at verse five with me. This is the disciples' response to it. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So Jesus just tells them what they need to be doing and their response is, Lord, like give us more of faith because, because what you're saying and, and, and what, we're, what we're feeling, we know that it's not enough because it seems impossible. So Lord, give us faith. It's their plea to Jesus as their response to what he's teaching. And in verse six, what does Jesus say? And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Any of you know what a mulberry tree is? Just out of curiosity, a few of you, okay. So mulberry trees, I had to look this up. I had to do some research on it. It's like, why a mulberry tree? You know, because like there's plenty of trees in that part of the world. Why a mulberry tree? Evidently, mulberry trees have ridiculously deep roots. I didn't know this. They're extremely deep roots. And they are virtually impossible to uproot, especially in the day that Jesus was preaching. Mulberry trees, if they were there, they were there. And Jesus is saying, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, let me help you visualize that in case you've never really fully understood what he's saying about a mustard seed. Like imagine a popcorn kernel, okay? Popcorn kernel unpopped. Cut that in half. And you've got roughly the size of a mustard seed-ish sort of a range, but it's going to be pretty close. Half of a popcorn kernel will give you an idea of what Jesus is saying. So faith the size of a half size of a popcorn kernel will help you move a tree that is seemingly impossible to move. Jesus is saying that if you had faith just this small, you could do the impossible. Now it would be easy and it has been easy for many a teacher to misconstrue this and to say that what Jesus is saying is, if only you had a little more faith. If only you had a little more faith. If only you were a little more forgiving. If only you were a little more sin-hating. If only you were a little more sin-fighting, then you'd be able to do things. If only you just believed harder, things would come to your life. Goodness and blessing and prosperity and all those things, right? Be super easy to misconstrue it, and it's misconstrued all the time. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't saying that the more faith you have will allow you to do things. He's saying that having faith will allow you to do things. Having faith will allow these impossible things to become possible. And what's the reference here? The impossibility of continually forgiving somebody. 
The impossibility of continually forgiving somebody becomes possible when you have faith. Because what did the disciples just say? They said, Lord, make our faith bigger. And Jesus says, it's big enough. Like even faith the size of a mustard seed, like the tiniest thing Jesus is really going to be able to compare it to. Like even faith the size of that, if authentic, can do what it's supposed to do. And so our last point for tonight as we wrap up, our, our point of application is not have more faith, it's have faith. Have faith. And once again, we've come full circle. And we're back to this idea of sin and faith and them being tied together. And we realize the whole concept here is to have a sin-fighting faith, an authentic faith that equips us to fight the sin in our lives and rebuke the sin in others' lives. Disciples say we can't do it. We need more faith. And Jesus teaches that faith is enough, which means authentic faith is enough for, to do what he's asking. And, and guys, for us, like, this is great news. Right? This, this is not like, man, here's the faith you have. And if you had just a little bit more, you need to work harder. You need to try harder. Like, this is not a depressing thing. This is a really great and joyful thing because Jesus is saying that if you have faith, you can do this. And the reason why even more it's great news is because Jesus is the one that gives us the faith. Right? We, don't, we don't even have to try for it. Like the disciples have a good heart in asking for more of it, right? But what they're acknowledging is that the Lord gave it in the first place. This passage is going to seem really familiar to you if you were with us last semester, but it's up on the screen. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It talks about faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, pay attention to this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Guys, if, if this doesn't feel like a weight to you, the burden of trying to continually forgive others and fight your own sin, I don't know what's going to feel like a weight to you. If fighting your own sin doesn't feel like sin, like this is exactly what this is talking about. Let us lay aside every weight and sin and let us run with endurance the race that is set us for us. What does it say? Looking to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He's the founder and he's the perfecter of our faith. Like the answer to hating sin, to not causing it, to, to not keeping it, is not someone to just have more of it. Not someone to just have more faith, but rather it's being given the faith to look to Jesus to look to Jesus, who's the one that gave us the faith. That's why they call him the founder of it, right? He started the faith. He gave us the faith. And not only that, but they're asking for more of it. And you know what? Jesus is the perfecter of the faith too. He's the one who gives it and he's the one who perfects it. Like this is great news for us because it means it's off us and it's all on Jesus. And the key here that we see in this passage is to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So what does this look like practically in a, in a real life situation? That's what I'm about. Right? I want to give you practicals. Next time someone hurts you, sins against you, belittles you, speaks poorly of you, gossips against you, slanders you, whatever it may be, what do you do? Do you turn to your friends and start reviling and being critical? No, first we seek Jesus. We turn our eyes to Jesus in prayer and through his word and through his spirit. 
Turn our eyes to him because he's the founder. He's the perfecter. He's how we lay aside every weight and sin. And then we are empowered through the faith he's given us to turn and instead of reviling, we can turn in rebuke. We can turn and say, you know what? The sins against me, they were sinful. They were harmful to me. And I'm telling you them and I'm showing you where they are. And I'm asking you to repent of them. So that's, that's the practical. It still sounds hard, right? Like no one loves that kind of conflict. Um, but it's a great thing. It's a great thing that we are given the faith to be able to do this. So I, I, I know message started off a little heavy hitting, but I pray that you also feel super encouraged that the fight is not in your own strength and it's not in your own power. Right. Father, thank you so much for all that you've taught us in your word. Jesus, thank you for your teachings. I, I know, Lord, I cannot possibly cover all your teachings even in that spot in, in just 30 minutes. I pray, Father, that you would continue to bring your words to the hearts of those in this room tonight and that you would stir up our hearts to ask questions and to dive deeper than what I can possibly do here tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not revile and not rebuke poorly, Lord, but that we would rebuke in a, a godly way. And Lord, that we wouldn't desire to cause sin or keep it amongst us, but that through the faith you give us, Lord, we would act towards one another in a godly fashion. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.